Let us begin our sermon with prayer. God of majesty and power, the works of your hands are gracious and glorious, worthy of praise. Use the words of today's sermon to fill us with awe and reverence for your mighty deeds, that we may follow your precepts all our days. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. Certainly it was fitting for God, the one for whom and through whom everything exists, in leading many sons to glory, to bring the author of their salvation to his goal through sufferings. For he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one father. For that reason, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. Within the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am and the children God has given me. Therefore, since the children share flesh and blood, he also shared the same flesh and blood so that through death he could destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For surely he was not concerned with helping angels, but with helping Abraham's offspring. For this reason, he had to become like his brothers in every way, in order that he would be merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, so that he could pay for the sins of the people. Indeed, because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have two candles on our altar. We light them on communion Sundays to remind us Jesus is true God and true man. So they remind us of his two natures, God and man. And during the Advent season, we have a lot of liturgy and things that build up to help us celebrate that birth of our Savior. We have that Advent wreath with the four Advent candles that remind us of the gifts Jesus gives us, peace, love, joy, and hope. And, and on Christmas Day, we light that center candle to remind us Christ has come. And in the meantime, in our own homes, we have Christmas trees and we put gifts underneath them to remind us of the greatest gift ever given, our Savior. But underneath the trees are empty now. There are no more gifts. Christ has come. We've celebrated his birth. And all of a sudden, the season just seems to have lost its luster. The glory, it's faded because we've celebrated Christmas. Imagine how it felt being a Jewish Christian. All those years of going to the temple and the synagogue and all those laws prescribed. And all of a sudden, Christ has come and they're gone. In today's text, we see the author to the Hebrews writes, explaining to the people the very reason why all those things are fulfilled in Christ, but they have an additional problem that's addressed today. You see, they're being persecuted by the Jews. And if you don't believe me, you need to look no further than a man named Saul, who had previously been taking Christians out of places like Damascus to arrest them and bring them down. And the Jews had gotten permission from the Romans to hold a court and kill the Christians for being heretics. So besides missing all that ceremony, like our Christmas now, it kind of seems to be gone, even though we should rejoice because it's fulfilled. They're also being persecuted and suffering. And so in today's text... The author looks to the birth of Christ, his taking on our flesh and blood, that two natures, to help comfort them. And in our sermon today, we see the reason why God took on flesh and blood. To make us brothers, to free us from the slavery of death, and to help us through temptations. And so our text begins, indeed, it was fitting for God on account of whom all things exist and through whom all things exist in order to lead many sons into glory to bring the author of their salvation to his goal through sufferings. Wow. 
God took on human flesh to suffer. Not just suffer poverty in a way you and I have never suffered it prayerfully. Not just suffer in his life being tempted by the devil. Not just suffering having people hate him and resent him. But we know that suffering culminates when he's on that cross. And when he's on that cross, he experiences a pain you and I, thanks to him, thanks to the gift of him, will never have to suffer. He suffers an eternity of being abandoned by God. And that is hell. And yet, as true God, he manages to get it done in three hours' time. And he does that for you and I. The point here, the Christians are, are being hated by the Jews who hated the Savior. They're suffering and he's saying, you should expect that. Your Savior suffered and that's how he saved you. And he actually, he uses suffering in our life to keep us in our faith, to remind us that we need him. He subjected this creation to decay so that we wouldn't get attached to this falling world, but would look to the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus has won for us. And so we're told in verse 11, in fact, both the one who keeps on, and we translate it sanctified, but it's being set apart for God's holy purposes. So, in fact, both the one who keeps on setting apart as holy and those who are being set apart as holy are all from one. On account of this reason, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. True God, in, in unity with Father and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, but that one person, He takes on human flesh to be in unity with us so that He could set us apart for His holy purposes. That's your new man, as opposed to your sinful nature. You're in my sinful nature. And the amazing thing is, He calls us brothers. Now again, in today's day and age, sisters, you get offended. You may get offended and say, but what about me? I'm a sister. But remember... In Old Testament Israel, the brother, the, the, the sons inherited the land. A daughter, she inherited from her husband. So what he's actually saying here, even to you sisters in Christ, is you have an equal footing. You have the inheritance of heaven as well. Calling us brothers, he says we are royalty now in his kingdom. But think about that. He's not a God who just sympathizes with us because he suffered pain like we did. He's like a big brother who never sins. A big brother who's always looking out for us. And so we're told by saying, I will recount your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. This is actually a quote of Psalm 22, verse 22. Psalm 22 is the clearest picture of Christ's suffering on the cross. And the Hebrew word he uses is an accounting term. I will add up all the things about your name and then I'll describe what the ledger books has to say. And God's name is everything He reveals to us that He does for us about Himself. Jesus came to earth to reveal God to us. Jesus is the Word. And so in the midst of suffering in that Psalm 22, He still is adding up and describing to us the wonderful things about God's holy name, the things that He does for us. And He says, In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Well, we saw that today when his parents every year brought him to the temple for the Passover and he was staying behind hearing the word of the Lord and his parents would faithfully go to the synagogue and he would sing hymns. The point is, brothers and sisters in Christ, he's right there worshiping as we do. And that's a comfort for me. I'm a pastor. I went through several years of training and I've been leading liturgies now for 14 years. And yet you have seen me screw it up. <laughs> I wish it wasn't the case. I, I'm, I'm talking about just stumbling through the liturgy, missing a song or something. 
I have to admit to you, there are times when I'm exhausted and, Lord, I need a break. And I grumble. I have to admit to you, my worship isn't always perfect. Now, when I screw up the word and I find out about it, I tell you and correct that. That's one of the things you called me to do. But you and I, we screw up in worship. And I know you don't listen perfectly to every word of the sermon. I couldn't when I was a lay person. And that's why it's a comfort. He did that for us in our place. He was even perfect at worshiping God. And he tells us that wherever two or three are gathered in his name, he's there with us. So right now, because we're gathered in his name, he is here among us as our brother, worshiping perfectly with us. And so he continues and again saying, I myself will be having placed my confidence upon him. He's quoting Isaiah here, and it's very interesting the way the Holy Spirit inspired the author to write this. He combines a future verb and a past verb. I will be having placed my confidence. Jesus always had his confidence in the Father during his state of humiliation when he didn't use all the powers of his godhood. Think about how he had to trust in God when Herod wanted to kill him. Think about how he turned things over to the Father. And think about the night that he's going to be arrested He knows the agony of the cross and he says, Father, if there's another way, let's do that. But not my will, but your will be done. And think about when he's on the cross, the last word he says as he separates his own soul from his body. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He did that perfectly for you and I as well as our brother whom we're united to through that mystical union. And once again, he says, and again saying, I miss that word, behold. That's what the King James Version used to say. And it was a very blunt way of saying, notice, I'm here, but not just I'm here, and my children who you gave to me, O God. Another quote out of the prophet Isaiah. Really here, Jesus is calling you his little lamb. I'm here with my little lamb whom I'm united with, who I purchased and won, who you gave to me. Don't miss the doctrine of predestination here, brothers and sisters in Christ. God the Father planned this out for you to be possession of God the Son, who owns you like a loving shepherd, like a big brother always looking out for you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, God took on human flesh and blood to make us brothers. And that's very important. Brothers with him, we have an inheritance. We're united with God. The son is always looking out for you, always loving you as his precious little lamb, as he has taken on human flesh for us. And so verse 14 tells us the conclusion we want to draw out of all that. Therefore, since the children have common participation in blood and flesh, every one of us has blood and flesh. That's what makes us human. Also, Jesus, in the same way, shared in these same things so that through his death, he could put out of commission the one who continues having the ruling power over this death. That one is the devil. A lot is said there. The name for the devil that's used is the name slanderer. The devil comes with lies and slanders. And we need to look no further than the first sin, how he came and lied to Adam and Eve, and then they sin. And you know what? The devil does the same thing with you and I. He gets us, it's okay, you do that little thing, it's no big deal. And and then once you've committed the sin, he runs off. Hey God, God, I got a sin on their list, I got a sin on their list. And what else does he do? He turns to you through your sinful nature and says, how could you? God will never forgive you. He lies through his teeth. And this is how he has the power of death. Now, let's not kid ourselves. Our triune God is the one who made all creation and he rules over it. But this is the power of the devil, his leverage that he has over us. But Jesus took that away. He thought he was killing Jesus. 
Jesus took on human flesh so that he could take away that power of death. And he took it away by giving you and I eternal life. And so verse 15 says, And so that he could release those as many who were subject to slavery throughout all their lives on the basis of the fear of death. Have you ever heard an atheist say, Religion is fairy tales. We tell little children so that they can cope with death. Now they're saying that of all religion. All religion is, is man-made, but the true religion, which is in Christ. But I always wish somebody would tell me that to my face, because I have or other people tell me that, because I'd say, you know, that's just as stupid as saying spare tires are something we put on cars to give people comfort in case they get a flat. Yes! Christ took away the sting of death. Even atheists are afraid of death. Don't kid yourself. The best they can hope for is that they close their eyes and that's it. You cease to exist. Because if this religion thing, if, if it's true that God saved the world and unbelief is the only thing that damns us to hell, they got a lot to fear, don't they? But brothers and sisters in Christ, again, as a Christian, i got to tell you, I don't like death. The separation of the soul from the body, which God made to be together, that is not something I look forward to. But I don't look forward to it in a way that a woman doesn't look forward to labor. She looks forward to holding her child afterwards. The fear of death is gone in you and I because Christ has told us, you're going straight to heaven. You believe in me and I will give you a new and glorified body. I will give you a new heavens and a new earth. So death has lost its sting because we no longer have to fear it the way those who don't know Christ do. Or think about those who think that they earn their forgiveness by buttering up God through certain acts. If I say enough prayer or I give enough offering, I've been there. When they're facing death, all of a sudden they go, uh-oh, have I done enough? But you don't have that fear because God, you know God took on human flesh and He did enough. And so we're told, in fact, he certainly did not take hold of the things of angels for himself, but he took on the seed of Abraham for himself. The angels who didn't fall when the devil rebelled, they remained holy and God just sealed them in their holiness. They didn't need to be redeemed. But mankind fell. They were duped by the devil's lie. That's where they needed to be redeemed. And God had promised Abraham that the Savior would be his descendant, so specifically through Abraham's lineage he comes. Now you and I are adopted children of Abraham through faith in our big brother, Jesus Christ. Christ took on your and my flesh to redeem us. He didn't have to redeem... He's not concerned about redeeming animals and angels. He redeemed us. So verse 17 says, Consequently, he was obligated to be made like all of his brothers in accordance with all things so that he would prove to be merciful and a faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God in order to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. What are the common characteristics that all human beings have? Jesus took that on. He's 100% true man and 100% true God. He was obligated to do that. To save us because of God's promise to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head while the serpent would bite his heel. But he did all this to prove to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, Samuel, in our first lesson, he served under Eli. Eli himself was not a faithful high priest because his sons, who were in line to be high priest after him, they were greedy. They pushed people out of the way and took the best chunks of meat. They didn't care about their offering. And Eli never did anything to stop it. He was not faithful. 
Most of the high priests weren't. In fact, look at the ones who were alive when Christ was born. Annas, deposed by the Roman government, and then his son-in-law put in place, Caiaphas. Well, they should have been screaming, Behold the Lamb of God! He's come! How wonderful! Instead, they said, We've got to get this guy out of the way. He does miracles that only could be done if they were sent from God. But he's challenging our position. He would abolish the high priesthood because he's the high priest. So they had that kangaroo court to find charges through which they could kill him. Not they had charges and then they were, you know, he was guilty of a crime. We call that murder, brothers and sisters in Christ. But Jesus is the high priest. He's merciful and faithful, especially pertaining to the things of God. He talks to God for us and us for God. And every day you and I sin and he's right there telling God, I died for that little lamb. That's my brother. That's my sister. Their sins are removed. And he's made reconciliation because he's removed our sins. So we're reconciled to God. We are now his children. And that takes away the sting of death because we know we have eternal life. So we see as we celebrate at Christmas, God took on human flesh and blood to make us brothers and to free us from the slavery of death. And now, once again, going right back to the Jewish Christians suffering, being persecuted by other Jews. In fact, in that which he has suffered by being tested, he continues being able to come to the aid of those who are being tested. Now, you've heard me say there are two different kinds of tests that God uses on us. And I've said, God knows all things that's actually revealed to us. The first kind of test is, do I have gold or fool's gold? That test he does to show us where we do have faith. The second kind of test is really an examination. I know I've got gold. How many carat is it? And that's the word that's used here. God is showing us where our faith needs strengthened when we are tempted. He uses that for our good. Now, Jesus was tested in every way. Again, imagine being there a baby. We know he was around two years old or younger when, because Herod killed all the two-year-old sons and younger in Bethlehem. As a baby, he could have used his power of God poof, and taken care of Herod and those soldiers. Instead, he remains weak like you and I and has to have his mother scoop her up in her arms as Joseph leads them down to Egypt until things are safe again. Imagine the times that he saw. We know after age 12 is the last time Joseph's ever mentioned in the New Testament. So we logically conclude that between age 12 and Jesus' public ministry at about age 30 that his stepfather Joseph had died. It had to have hurt. And he could have used his godly powers to raise him as he did Lazarus. But he suffered that for you and I as well. Of course, we can think about right after his baptism, when he fasts for 40 days, led out into the desert by the Holy Spirit, and the devil tests him, said, turn these rocks into bread. You're hungry. Jump off the temple. Worship me, and I will give you all this. And Jesus withstood that temptation perfectly for you and I. He did that even, even facing the power of the terror of the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to ever be tempted by that cross. But brothers and sisters in Christ, he's not just somebody who says, you know, I understand, I sympathize with that. He's truly been there for us. And he's united us to himself in that mystical union. So he feels your pains as well. And so he doesn't just stand back and say, oh, you poor dear. He comes to your aid. He comes to your aid with His Word. When we fall into the temptation, He assures you your sins are forgiven. When we stand firm, He assures you that Holy Spirit's in His heart and that Word is working as a shield and as a sword for you. And so we see God took on human flesh and blood to help us through temptations. Christmas has come and passed. We've opened up the gifts. The tree is empty. Like the Jewish Christians, we can miss that and look back, but we get to celebrate doing it again in another year. But all year round, we always get to celebrate the reason for Christmas. God took on our flesh and blood to make us his brothers, to free us from the slavery of death 
and to help us through temptations by being there with us as our brother. Amen. And now the brilliant light of Christ will continue to shine on our hearts and his light will continue to guide our feet into the path of peace. Amen.